The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 15. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stretches. Release you. Runway 4 left. Wind 0 4 0 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is arrived. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. This episode is sponsored by Hangar 24 Craft Brewing. Their main tap room is located on Redlands, California, where they brew all their beer in-house. They have additional tap rooms in Orange County, as well as Lake Havasu. I fell in love with Hangar 24 when I flew the Hangar 24 Airfest back in 2018. It's a great company that makes amazing beer. I'm excited to be a part of the Hangar 24 family. Encourage you to go over and check out Hangar24Brewing.com. And if you're in the SoCal area or Lake Havasu, swing by one of their tap rooms. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters. Again, a company that I just absolutely love. and I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by SquadronPosters.com. And check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there or you can mention my name receive a discount on your group customization order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order, or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. And if you just say something, we really will know we're good. Okay, you failed the say something part. Oh, something. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Here we go. <laughs> this, is be, this might be the best opening yet. I think every time it gets better and better. Flynn, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Everyone, I have my good buddy, Mason Locke, you'll hear me call him Flint. He's an F-16 instructor pilot out at Holloman Air Force Base. We were assigned together at Shaw, flying the mighty Block 50 Viper. And now you're flying something with a slightly smaller engine. But slightly. Still, but still just as cool. 
So it's, it's close. It's yeah. close. <laughs> Flint, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Before we get really rolling into it, will you kind of tell everyone the elevator pitch of Flint Lock, kind of who you are, what you're doing now, and how you got there? Ooh, elevator pitch. That's how many floors are we going up? Uh, we're only going up three floors, so we're already right, past three the first floors. floor. All right, yeah. So uh, I grew up in a small farming town about an hour southwest of Houston called East Bernard, Texas. My dad was a crop duster or aerial applicator, ag pilot, <laughs> whatever the proper term is. And so that's really what got me into aviation. I went to Texas A&M University, did the Corps of Cadets there, was in Squadron 3, and then uh, commissioned into the Air Force. Went through uh, Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Train there at Shepard. Got the F-16, went through the Texas Air National Guard, uh, then went to Korea for a little while to Shaw, where we got to hang out for a few years. And now I'm instructing in the F-16 at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico. Yeah, you spent a lot of time in Texas. I didn't know you went through, I guess I probably did know it, but I've since forgotten. I apologize. That you, oh, no worries. That you went through uh, guard training in the Viper. So it, it, it was a slightly non-standard career path. And uh, I've gotten to see the world since, but I did find it ironic when I grew up in Texas, went to college in Texas, went to pilot training in Texas, went to F-16 training in Texas. And I tried pretty hard to uh, get a spot at Fort Worth to just stay in Texas, which in hindsight, I'm glad I kind of got out of the state and branched out. But yeah, I spent about the first 23, 24 years of my life in Texas. Yeah, you really branched out all the way over there to New Mexico now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I could be in Texas in literally 45 minutes. <laughs> but I know short stint in South Carolina as well as South Korea and then a few other garden spots in the world. But uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, what your role is? Yeah, so I instruct at the B course at Holloman Air Force Base. So the B course is what we call in the Air Force, I think the, the Navy calls it the RAG. Sounds about uh, right. Sim, sim, similar idea there. Uh, it's where we take pilots that have just come out of pilot training and are training them specifically in the aircraft that they're going to fly, which for us is the F-16. So there are several bases around now uh, that produce F-16 pilots. You got Luke in Phoenix, Tucson Air National Guard uh, has a few squadrons there. And then there's Kelly Field in Texas, where I went through. Uh, Holloman is actually recently stood up. When we went through it, it wasn't here yet, but they've since moved some F-16s here, moved another squadron here. And now there's three F-16 squadrons all doing training. So it's actually the biggest F-16 training base in the Air Force right now, um, training new pilots and bringing pilots back that have been on staff, been at the Pentagon, as well as folks that are maybe transitioning from a different airframe to the F-16, like guys going to the Thunderbirds usually come through Holloman to get their F-16 qualifications. You know, I'm really sad that I didn't get to spend more time in Holloman. I think most people say that, but it actually is not a bad little spot. You got the mountains up to the north, but the fact that we moved from Phoenix where the predominantly all F-16 training occurred to Holloman, I think was a big sore spot for a lot of F-16 pilots, but that's what you yeah, mean, right? So there's definitely, I think when you mention Holloman and Alamogordo, New Mexico, there's an initial kind of reaction <laughs> from everyone, but I'll say, I, I would say probably nine out of 10 people that come out here uh, and spend a little time out here really end up changing their mind because they're, if you like the outdoors, there's so much to do. And for me, being from the flatlands of Texas, like the flattest <laughs> land that you can think of, 
in the most humid land you can think of, right on the coast, next to Houston. It's just hot, muggy. Uh, moving out here into the desert, which is pretty awesome dry heat. It's much better than the humidity. It was a nice move, but then there's the mountains right next door. So I'm in a desert right now. The, the base is in the desert basin, but you can drive up the mountain in 20 minutes and it feels like you're in Colorado. I mean, it's cool. There's trees. There's wintertime. There's all kinds of skiing, uh, snowboarding. If you like to hike, fish, there's a lot of ATV in out here. So I think most people really find that Holloman's not too bad. If yeah. you love the big city, though, uh, yeah, you're going to be that one guy that, that <laughs> wants to get out of here as soon as you can. But I really like it. Yeah, I enjoyed my time, especially when I was out there visiting with you. You did show me that there's mountains and other things to do. So I do appreciate that. You turned my opinion on Holloman just ever so slightly. And, I mean, the, the biggest draw is we're in New Mexico, but we have the best Texas barbecue that most people have ever had. Yeah. That, that- I, would put up, I would put up against anyone in Texas to include the – the famous joints. Yeah, it was phenomenal barbecue. Mad Jacks. Mad Jacks Mountaintop yeah. Barbecue. It was good. Let's talk a little bit about the the B course specifically. How many how many B coursers are you putting through each year there? Uh, each year, so uh, each squadron will have usually between a fifteen to sixteen pilot class. Uh, twice a year is what it is now. That's uh, we've ramped up production probably from when we went through. I think it was about the same class size, but it was every nine months. And now uh, the classes have been kind of compressed to try and produce more F-16 pilots. Uh, so it's two per year. And then we just have onesie twosies folks moving over from a different airframe, maybe a general that's getting requalified that kind of come through and uh, leave during those classes, you know? So here's my They're question much- for you. Like obviously the Air Force went through a fighter pilot pilot shortage uh, a few years ago, I think COVID has solved some of that with people not getting out. A multitude of efforts or lines of effort to try and gap that with increasing pilot training production, fighter pilot production, retention programs. But do you see just putting more bodies in jets right now at the cost of quality? Or do you think quality is being maintained? Has the Air Force figured that out? What's Flint, Flint Locke's opinion on this? All right. So that's obviously a tough question. We are definitely trying to push more people through faster uh, than we did in the past to help offset that shortage that you mentioned. Uh, But for certain, we are not lowering our quality. Um, We like to say MIF is MIF, which I'll be honest, I forget what MIF even stands for, but it's basically the the standard that a task must be uh, operated and demonstrated uh, at for them to pass. And for us instructors here, you know, we understand there's a, a shortage, but it's about safety for the air crew. So the pilots and their, their wingmen, and then the people on the ground that as uh, you've seen interviewing folks in our deployment and such that you're supporting on the ground. So making sure that the pilots are trained to a level where they can safely and effectively, you know, produce air power for our nation, uh, that has not suffered because if they, you know, don't do well in a ride because they got their hours cut, well, guess what? I'm going to hook them and they're going to see it again. And so, um, there's definitely more and it, you know, we're burning the midnight oil and trying to push more classes through, but we are not cutting 
the quality that we expect ride to ride. You guys are still washing people out of the B course. That still occurs, correct? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough job being a single seat fighter pilot and not everyone is cut out for it. You know, that doesn't mean you're a bad pilot or a, a bad officer by any stretch, but it's a very demanding high stress job at times. And so some people, uh, for whatever reason, just don't make it through. The Air Force is usually great about assigning them a different airframe. And, you know, they go on to serve, but just not in the F-16. So last question about the B course, and then we'll talk about Flint Lock and your career up until this point and what that has entailed. But the B course, what does it look like for your average B course who walks in day one? What are they, what are they capable of doing when they start and when they finish? What does it take to get them to being a combat mission-ready wingman? Yeah, so absolutely. They show up as winged aviators from Air Force pilot training, generally speaking. So most of them have flown the T-6, transitioned to the T-38, although we are now seeing some folks from pilot training next, which is a whole discussion on its own that have actually never flown the T-38. But for the most part, that's going to be your your standard path to getting your wings. So they show up with that, uh, but they got a long way to go because the F-16 is a pretty big step up from uh, either of those planes. So they start off with a front load of academics, you know, learning the systems, maybe bringing in some of the weapons as they begin, and then they hit simulators. So doing a lot of emergency procedures and then getting interface with the avionics and that sort of thing. Then after a, uh, a pretty big block of simulators, they hit the flight line and we start with what's called TR transition, where they're just learning to take off and land and get from point A to point B in the F-16, that they're going to finish that phase, which is five flights. Uh, Usually they solo on their third or fourth ride and then a check ride, which is their first official Air Force check ride uh, where they get an actual form aid and uh, it goes in their permanent record. After that, we start using the F-16 as it was designed to be. So as a weapon and they do air to air first. So starting off small and it's a building block approach. So one versus one dog fighting, offensive, defensive, and neutral. Then move up to 2v1, which... uh, my dad loved to say like 2v1, so it's you versus two bad guys. And I'm like, no, it's actually two good guys versus a single bad guy. And he's like, well, that's not fair. And I was like, <laughs> you would be surprised how hard it is Toughest. to fight as a team uh, to kill one adversary. Uh, so we do that. And then we just continue moving on uh, 2v2, 4v4. We go from within visual range out to beyond visual range. Uh, so again, building block concept. After that, they transition to air to ground. Uh, usually with about two, two months left, start with the basics of dropping bombs. So unguided, you know, kind of old school dive bombing, strafing runs. They get to shoot the mighty M61, uh, Vulcan cannon there, which is always fun. America. And, and then they end the course moving up all the way to precision guided munitions. So laser guided bombs, JDAMs, which we get to actually have them drop. And sometimes if we're lucky, the instructors get them too. Nice. Uh, And then their capstone is putting that all together. So fighting your way in air to air, dropping bombs, and then fighting your way out. And oh, by the way, as they're doing that, we also uh, learn to do all of that at night. And so by the time they leave, they've learned hundreds of pages of interface for how to uh, cue the different weapons with all the various switches on the throttle and stick uh, so that they can go to their combat unit. They do a quick spin up and they get stamped as combat mission ready by the air force 
That's cool. So I said that was going to be the last question, but then you said pilot training next. And that is something that is fascinating me because that's one of those efforts the Air Force is doing to increase pilot production. How do we streamline? How do we make pilot training more efficient? So you guys actually have people showing up who have never flown the T-38. In the Not B- many. It's still an anomaly, but, uh, but yes. How's that going? It's different. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, the standard like uh, that you like to say is, oh, this is just like you saw in the T-38 and IFF, or the, right. the F-16 has the same inertial navigation system as the T-38. Like you, you hear that a lot in the academics. Like it's just like the T-38 yeah. for some of the more basic stuff. And then you've got one person raising their hand saying, I, I never flew the T-38. Like, oh, that, that does change the ball game. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in how we can leverage some of the technologies that we're doing with PTN. And we're kind of working out the kinks of how to best use them to really synergize the pilot uh, product that we're getting now. Motor Riley yep. deployed with us. Good yep. buddy. Yep, yep. He's in charge. He's in charge of it. You ought to have him on the show. Uh, yeah, I need to. I heard he was doing that. And that's a good point. I had heard a lot about pilot training next right before I separated active duty. And I know there are some people, myself included, who are skeptics. Um, I never went there, but uh, Flash Edwards is one of those guys, B course instructor at Luke. He went mm-hmm, out and mm-hmm. tour pilot, pilot training next. And when he came back, he was sold based on the technology they're using and how it could lever- be leveraged to make improvements to the different syllabi and things like that for, for all, all training together. It is interesting, though, to see. I mean, I remember my first T-38 ride from the T-6, like took off, went out to the airspace, and I think I was still sitting on the runway, you know, like. Absolutely. Mentally. Yeah. And it's a big switch going from a just turboprop to an afterburning jet engine, let alone that to an F-16, you know? Yeah, about double or triple it, no, I'd say. No big deal. Huh. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, how the Air Force transforms. It's one of those things we always say, like, well, that's how we always have done it, you know? And pilot training has been around since the 50s. We've always done it that way. So leveraging technology and making improvements, I think, is a good thing. And absolutely with like the new T seven coming online. Uh, I don't know if taking a fast jet out of the loop to speed things up is the right answer. Cause we're going to be spending a lot of money on that. And it looks like a really cool aircraft and trainer. Yep. Uh, but I think it'll be interesting to see as we learn more about how pilots can, can use things like VR and AI, uh, to learn putting it all together and, uh, hopefully just improving what is already, I would argue, the best quality of pilot training in the world. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, now we kind of know what you're doing. And now, I'd like to peel back the onion on who Flintlock is and how you got all to right. this point. So, oh boy, let's peel it. Yeah, what got you hooked in aviation? What what made it all click and start for you? Oh, that's pretty easy. As growing up uh, out in the country, with my dad is a crop duster, so I grew up... Uh, pretty much on a farm ranch type environment and flying or having a big yellow planes flying around all the time. Uh, so from a young age, I was just into airplanes and what I grew up with of flying low is not probably what most people into aviation, uh, think of when they, when they think about airplanes flying low. So something that my dad used to do, he's, he's retired now, but, um, 
you know, they'd be flying around and we'd be out working on the ranch, maybe driving a tractor. And he was a master of sneaking up on you. You know, he, he would, I don't know, peek over the trees and he'd look at a field and be like, oh yeah, Mason's out there today uh, shredding weeds. And he would time it to where you are facing away and he would just sneak in and zoom, fly right over the top of you. <laughs> most, most crop dusters have a uh, smoke, kind of like a air show plane that they use to determine what direction the wind's blowing for uh, which way the chemicals are going to go. And so you just get, get this oily smoke. And especially on a John Deere 4440 that I was usually driving, the sound of that turboprop approaching when you didn't see it sounds like the turbocharger on that thing running away. And so your heart would start to beat and you'd look at the RPMs and uh, like, oh no, the engine's about to blow. And then all of a sudden, zoom, <laughs> his uh, plane, plane would fly right over seemingly, you know, just about to hit you. Uh, and I swear that has carried over into, into my current life as a fighter pilot. Because after, you know, that happens a few times when you're five years old, you start scanning the horizon anytime you're out. Yep. And so I grew up kind of, we teach students how to do this visual scan pattern to look for enemy aircraft, you know, line of sight, that sort of thing. Uh, so my entire childhood was spent looking on my shoulder, waiting for big airplanes to swoop down and scare the living tar out of me. <laughs> uh, and I think that's helped in my current career. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I can see that guy on the horizon. Just like watching out for dad. I mean, you'd literally, we'd be driving, you know, into town and he'd recognize your car. Cause they fly slowly. It's like, Oh, there they are. And then zoom right That's over awesome. the road. Just terrifying. That's so awesome. What made the transition then from, you know, why, why aren't you a crop duster? What made you go into the air force? Man, why aren't I a crop duster? That is a good question. That looks so much fun. Well, you're still young. So you still could do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, that's a good question. So I, I don't really remember when, but I was like, uh, I want to fly. I want to fly for the, for the military. I think it'd be cool to serve my country. I like flying low. I think it'd be cool to fly fast. Um, and so obviously there's the air force and the Navy and I'm not much of a waterman. So I was like, I'm I want to go to the air force. I think that's pretty cool. Didn't really have my heart set on any airframe. Uh, but then when I was, I believe, a freshman in high school, I got to go tour the F-16s out at Ellington Field uh, in Texas there when they were still uh, based there at Houston. And I was sold on the F-16. And from that point on, I was like, I want to fly the F-16. I think it's the coolest plane. Still do. America. Uh, there's, there's some other cool planes out there, but I, I love the F-16. And so that's, uh, I don't know, it's from a, a pretty young age. And I told myself I could probably still do crop dusting, like you said, because I'd still like to try that. It looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. I feel like you can get away with, a, not you can get away with a lot there, but it's just fun flying low. Yeah, you can't get away with it. I mean, you are bound under part 137 of the FARs. Yeah. Uh, they just have the blanket person or property, can't get close unless part of the actual dispensing mission. So, yeah, I, it, it would be a lot of fun. I haven't talked to a few crop dusters. It obviously is very dangerous. And it's not just go zip around. Like you're very focused. There's not a whole lot of time to react when you have something go wrong and you're off foot off the ground. Absolutely. So that is uh, 
for one thing, that's very true about how it is not just you go out and zoom around. There's actually a lot that goes into modern crop dusting, you know, which is kind of probably still a public misconception based on, I don't know, the scenes from North by Northwest or whatever, but they're pretty, uh, Throwback. they're pretty sophisticated with, they use GPS almost in a kind of like a HUD. It's called a light bar for really precision application. Um, always looking out obviously for towers and guy wires are the big dangers. So making sure that they're well aware of where they're going and where they can actually fly low. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty actually advanced industry for all that. Yeah. So one of my ATP, one of the guys getting uh, his ATP along with me was a uh, crop duster and he was telling a story of when he hit a power line. He's like, there are those who have and those that will. And yep. so his story, you know, it was, it was kind of a hazy day, whatever it might be, but ends up clipping this power line. No big deal because it, it cut the line, landed safely, but he cut the power line and it went to some factory that shut the factory down for like four hours. So his insurance, it covers it, but he ended up having to pay or you know, his insurance had to pay several hundred thousands of dollars and like lost wow. productivity. And like, you know, it was some rare I don't know, item or whatever it was on the line that day that just ended up costing a ton of money. So that's true. I'm trying to think of any crop duster I know that hasn't hit a power line and I'm drawing <laughs> a blank. I'm drawing a blank, man. So when you think about it, maybe if you're always saying I hit power lines, I don't know if I want to do this business, but no, that's cool. And it's awesome yeah. to see, you know, having that hook of aviation, such a young age, similar, you know, for me, but again, what you've gone and done is not a, just a, Hey, I'm gonna go out there and do it. It's a long-term goal that you have to go out there and pursue takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and it's just a long, long road to get there. And I mean, it's easy for me to say because uh, obviously my dad was my aviation inspiration, but I really do think maybe other than some of the elite air show performers, when you talk straight stick and rudder skills, um, crop dusters and maybe some of those fire bombers out yeah. there have the best stick and rudder skills of uh, any pilots today. Seeing those guys like in a DC 10, just skirting the mountains and dropping hundreds oh, of thousands of gallons of water. Like, I mean, the CG, everything's changing. Like yep. it is, it's pretty impressive to see. So now kind of fast forward into your air force career, you go off to the standard route of going through pilot training, earning your F 16, no small feat in itself. What was the highlight or what is the highlight of your F 16 career thus far? Uh, I'd say just to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty easy answers. Uh, our deployment out to the middle East, we're actually, you know, supporting troops on the ground, uh, doing live missions with actual dropping actual bombs on the bad guys. Uh, I will say that being an instructor at Holloman is awesome. It's incredibly rewarding. I've really come to enjoy it. And uh, I'm going to keep doing it for a while, staying here. But there's really nothing like hearing that there are troops in contact, that there's a danger close drop. Of course, for our deployment, it was uh, ISIS, and we're mostly supporting uh, our Iraqi allies. And then to an extent in the northern parts and in Syria, the Kurds, that they were under fire from ISIS, which I think, you know, worldwide, unequivocally, they're the bad guys uh, getting to 
you know, be the air power that saved those guys' life and help us push back the tide of ISIS. That has been the highlight of my career. Yeah, that's it. Same for me too. And uh, so I had chaos on the podcast earlier uh, in the season where we talked about pyro on the deployment. But I think, that, you know, that I would say that deployment hands down was by far like the most rewarding experience for me as well. And purely just like join the Air Force because I really wanted to get back to the guys that did 9-11. Obviously, the world evolved and there's new bad guys. So being able to go out there and, and do the mission is super rewarding. I think for me, the the highlight sortie I had was actually my second to last combat sortie, but it was with you. Yeah. And it was one that I just remember it was a bland, boring day. Um, it was the day that there was a dust storm. Yeah, couldn't see anything. We couldn't, yeah. We are up in Kobani, right? Hadn't seen anything like it. Yep, we were way up there in northern Syria. Yep. So I remember coming off the tanker, I think maybe after our first or second tanking. Mm-hmm. And then do you remember what uh, what happened after that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we'd, we'd come off the tanker and uh, we were checking back in with C2 to tell them, hey, we're done tanking and we're going to go back to uh, to our mission area in northern Syria. And they very, they sounded bored. They're like, okay, you're cleared. <laughs> yeah, there's, we're no tanking one, there's no one flying. We're tanking now anyway, so we don't have our radar. We can't see you. Like, good luck. I was like, yeah, it's fine. We'll be fine. And then uh, on that C2 frequency came the, a panicked voice asking for our assistance and they called us by our call sign. I forget what it was, but I think it was like, I think we're weasel. We- uh, yeah. I think we're weasel three, one, maybe yeah, I think it's weasel. Think three one. Is, yeah. It's like weasel three, one, uh, request your immediate assistance. My engine just blew up on the tanker and I'm, uh, might have to punch out. And so man, hearing that on that frequency, it's like, Whoa, that'll get your heart racing real quick. Because, yep. uh, as weird as it sounds, you know, your first combat drop, your heart's racing pretty hard. But after doing it for six months, you know, you still take it seriously and it's still a, uh, a big deal, but it becomes more routine. It's your job, you know? So yep. when they say cleared hot, cleared hot, your heart's not racing every time you hit the pickle button, you just get used to it. But we we're about to leave and that radio call, just hearing, hearing his voice, that got my heart racing. Uh, yeah. Hearing that he was, he was in distress and not over friendly territory and in a dust storm. Yeah. I remember so, uh, that was the same for me. I think cause at that point, you know, like dropping bombs is like just putting your pants on in the morning. Um, obviously it was, well, it was something you had to do and you had to do it right. Right. But here in, uh, an American who's potentially going to eject, like I remember my heart was just like pumping. I think we turned to the South and then racing cause they were coming out of Syria going into Al-Assad. Yeah, the Marines had just taken over Al-Assad. Gosh. Uh, so, yeah, he, uh, we got got in communication with him, started heading towards his uh, position, and basically he communicated his engine had blown up while he was on the tanker. And so now he was single engine, but uh, the explosion had actually damaged the aircraft, and the A-10's rugged aircraft, and it is built to, to fly off off one motor as most twin engine aircraft are. Uh, but that, that damage had made it to where he below a certain speed, the aircraft became uncontrollable. And so he actually had to keep a dive on the aircraft to keep it from going out of control. So he, in essence could not fly on one engine. He was, he was a powered glider 
fortunately, uh, you know, he was close enough to Al-Assad. He was heading that way, but his wingman was also out of gas because that happened before he got fuel as well. So uh, we were basically the closest friendly aircraft that could do anything if the worst uh, was going to happen. And he had to eject over that enemy territory in that dust storm. That's one of those, I remember, yeah, because he too, you know, the, also to build the picture in that time frame, like if you got captured by, I mean, captured by ISIS, it just wasn't going to end well. You know, the Jordanian uh, pilot that we flew with and, you know, he was captured and murdered. So I think, you know, for me, that was all weighing in, in that moment Absolutely. of like having to get there and Absolutely. be able to, you know, protect and defend and get him picked up as, as quick as possible if he had to eject. Yeah, I remember thinking like we will we hadn't dropped any bombs at that point. So I was like, okay, we have eight bombs. We've got about a thousand rounds of 20 mic mic. I will launch all my air to air missiles at the ground, just in the general direction of anyone I see going towards him once he's on the ground, and then I'm gonna jettison my fuel tanks and I'll try and hit him if I have to. But I was like, we will do everything we can if this guy uh, has to eject down to uh keep anyone from getting to them until we can get the rescue forces here. And you, yeah. And so in that time too, rescue forces, I think they actually had positioned some at Al-Assad at that point, but previously it was a four hour turn to reach pretty much anyone like on the Western part of Iraq, I think. So not a good spot to be if you have to punch out and bad guy land uh, and not have any friendly forces come for quite a while. That, yeah, I think that by far, that was my most memorable combat sortie. And it was my, my second to last one. And we wrap up that deployment. You actually ran into him a couple times, didn't you? That so, man, when I was the uh, F-16 liaison officer at the Kayak in uh, Al-Udid, Qatar, for a couple weeks, uh, his he and uh, another A-10 pilot actually diverted from their base where they were stationed due to weather. And so they came in and the A-10 liaison officer he's like hey we got two guys diverting you want to go out to the flight line and say hi so you know me i love airplanes f-16 is my favorite but i love all airplanes big small fast slow so i was like yeah i want to go look at an a-10 <laughs> that thing's got a big gun <laughs> and so we go out there and uh you know the pilots come in and i'm like hey can we look around and absolutely so i met him there and it's like uh wow, that's a pretty small world because we get back from that, that sortie. You know, we, we watch him. We sprint down there as fast as we can in afterburner, get him on the radar, get him in our targeting pods. We get calm with the JTAC, and we watch him land safely. So it's a happy ending to that story, obviously, uh, him landing at a friendly field. And so, But then once we land a few hours later, I call down to the A-10 squadron. I'm like, hey, I just want to check, like, everything okay with the A-10 guy? And they're like, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so. He's okay. It's all good. Everyone's safe. And I was like, no way. That is, uh, that's the same guy that was at the chaos with me. Yeah. And so it was a small world there. And then on the redeployment, we stop in the middle of the Atlantic ocean at Lodge's field. So again, it's a big world out there, rain. It's a real <laughs> big world. You know, I know there's a, there's not that many airports, but there's a lot of them. And that same day that we stopped through, the A-10s came in there too. And so we walk into the, uh, into the base ops while we're packing up the jets and 
lo and behold, the same guy's there. So I That's got to crazy. shake his hand, got to shake his hand after that incident and got to reminisce on it a little bit. And it was great, uh, great feeling for me. And I know it was the same for you just to, to know we didn't need to do anything, you know, spectacular, uh, but we were there in case he needed us and he was thankful and I was glad we were there too. Yeah. I'm glad it worked out of the way. I remember the, on the way down there cause we're like stores limit, just hauling the mail, trying to reach him. 0.95. Yeah. You sent me over to the, the JTAC for that Roz. Mm-hmm. Um, so restricted operating zone. And there was some French like Mirage on the frequency who was just like vomiting all over the frequency <laughs> and would not shut up. Uh. He was talking about some, you know, NAI scan he was doing at some road that had yeah, nothing yeah. going on. I was like, you have just no idea. Just please stop talking. <laughs> please stop talking. But that by far definitely got the heart rate up. I think higher than anything else. And it's like you hear Americans or any of friendlies in trouble period. Like that's going to, that's going to get the blood going for sure. Yeah. But man, it, it really hits home, you know, knowing it's another aviator yeah. kind of in the, in that situation he was in. Um, you know, it's just a little bit different because it's like, hey, that could be that could be me, and I only have one engine. Right, it wouldn't work out so well. Although I did it like the Dutch yeah. while we were there, they took a seven six two round right down the uh, the intake thing, just chewed it right up and just kept on going it up like a like a boss. Yeah, just gonna keep on running. <laughs> it was a Pride and Whitney. I don't know if that would be the case. I just lost. Pride I think and- there's. I think there's are. I, I thought they're GE. Nope, I think the Dutch oh. they're Pratt's. You would know more than I would. That's it's, for sure. It's a good motor. Still. It is you. I'll take the 129 though. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Oh man, that definitely that brings back some memories. That was definitely a, a memorable deployment. There's definitely some highs and definitely some lows that came yeah. with that one. But all in all, I think it was the highlight of my career as well. Well, before we wrap up here, Flint, I'll give you just a second to think, but you're gonna have a moment to pontificate and leave people with just some words of wisdom. And you have a very accomplished career. It took a lot of work, a lot of dedication. So for Flint, who is running around age 15, is there anything you would have said to yourself to 15 year old Flint? Oh man. Would I say anything to my 15 year old self about getting on the path that I'm now on? There's some weird time paradoxes that could happen here. So I'm not sure I would want to say anything. It could cause the universe to implode. Uh, not really, because I was at 15. You know, some people aren't sure really what path they want to take, but at 15, I knew, I knew that I wanted to fly for the United States Air Force. And I'd be happy to do it in whatever capacity they let me. But if they, if they had an F-16 for me, that was what I wanted to do. And so even back then, just thinking about some of the decisions I made, um, it was all looking towards that eventual goal of being an air force fighter pilot. So I would just say, don't, um, don't put it off till tomorrow or till next month or next year. If you're like, Oh, I want to start, you know, getting my resume ready for when I apply for the air force someday, like try and make good grades. Now don't get into trouble, uh, do anything stupid, take care of yourself. Like I, I know this is going to offend anyone listening in Texas high school, but I quit football because I had torn my ACL once in the eighth grade and I, I played my next year and it wasn't, I could feel on my ACL every day. And I was like, I don't want to tear my ACL again. It might keep me from being a fighter pilot one day. Um, 
so pretty much every decision I made, even at that age, was trying to get into uh, an Air Force jet. So I would just say be focused and work hard. That's huge, especially quitting football in Texas. Man, you're telling me. <laughs> got some got some dirty looks. That's awesome, though. I mean, it definitely anything you want to do, it's just going to take it a lot of work, and you're going to have to make sacrifices to get there. Prime example, not playing high school football in Texas. I know. Uh, <laughs> well, Flint, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, awesome story. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years of your flying career. Because you'll probably age out by then, I think. But maybe we'll oh, be I'll still be flying. I'll still be flying. till the end, end of my days. Yep. No. Yep. Thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Flying up, people are going to enjoy your story. You bet. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.